Ah, Maria, welcome to First Up. It is Rapare. That is Thursday, the 27th of October. Ko Nathan Rarere, aho. Coming up this morning, an incredible journey across the world in a jeep comes to a screeching halt for a couple of Kiwis in Iran. Deputy Prime Minister Grant Robertson tells us how the social influences defied travel warnings. Also, two students take over their canteen post-pandemic and they're turning a profit. And the Prime Minister is in Antarctica, which is nearly as cold as the First Up studio gets left here sometimes. People in the afternoon. Scott Bass's head chef tells us what's on the menu. Curry night's always a good one. We have fish and chip Fridays. Of course, probably the most important one is sausage roll Tuesdays. It's pretty much the way that people define their week. So they know it's a Tuesday, they know it's a Friday based on those two meals. Kia ora koutou. welcome to First Up. I'm Nathan Rarere. We will start in the United Kingdom where it's all it's just all, all go, really. Uh, the new Prime Minister's just taken over. Henry Riley is taking stock of it all and we like to butt in on his day and bother him by calling him. Kia ora, Henry, how are you? You're not bothering me at all. It's the highlight of my week. Brilliant. So, uh, Rishi Sunak, new Prime Minister, I think he's just done his, is it his first Prime Minister's questions? How did it go up against the opposition and, you know, lots of those people in the background going, that's right. There was a lot of that. Um, so this was his first Prime Minister's questions. Have you, as you say, it's a spectacle every Wednesday afternoon at midday here in the UK. And it's really where the politicians are tested because, you know, whilst Parliament is available to watch the whole time it sits, you can watch it on Parliament TV. I must admit, sometimes I am that sad. But mostly the, the general public who don't follow these things as closely um, very rarely see politicians in action in Parliament in the chamber. And so it was Rishi Sunak's turn uh, to sort of bat off questions from, from various MPs, and that inevitably includes the opposition. So Keir Starmer, he gets a number of questions. And it was his first chance, really, to question Rishi Sunak. It's it's a pairing that hasn't really been seen before, of course, because Rishi Sunak was Chancellor. They've never really uh, faced off before. And, you know, to all intensive purposes, Rishi Sunak actually did a, a rather good job. He, you know, a lot of people were drawing comparisons with David Cameron. He's quite a slick media performer. Now, you can question the substance behind what he says, absolutely, and Labour were picking holes in it. But he was very slick in his performance. As you remember, Nathan, as we've spoken about, Liz Truss was very jolted in her style. She was mm. very almost awkward when, when she was delivering speeches or indeed debating. And Boris Johnson, whilst had some charisma, was a bit all over the place. Um, and so Rishi Sunak was a sort of slick polit- political star that we haven't really seen before against quite a, a slick leader of the opposition in Sakir Starmer. So it was it was a fairly good match. And uh, many people praising Rishi Sunak in the sense that it was obviously a pretty difficult uh, bat for the Conservatives to have. And he seemed to uh, do a pretty decent job of it. What happened? You just mentioned Liz Truss. I'm wondering, what, is she there and and where do they sit her now? And I also wonder too, what happens to these recently, you know, deposed leaders? How do they generally act? Well, it it varies. So she wasn't there. She's uh, we hear taking a break from her fifty days as prime minister, a long deserved break. Um, but it, it depends on the leader, to be honest. So um, Boris Johnson, you know, has been somewhat absent because you know he, I suppose he was only prime minister until September. But to, and David Cameron, as soon as he lost the referendum result, resigned the next day, stayed on as an MP for a few months, and then resigned his seat. So quite often they get out hell out of dodge as quickly as they can. Tony Blair did 
did similar. Um, but Theresa May, for example, has stayed on the back benches and indeed quite often makes interventions in Parliament. She's seen as a sort of statesperson, which is to be applauded to some extent. You know, w whenever there's a big debate on housing or whatever, she will often speak. And as a for former prime minister, people will take stock. I have to say with Liz Truss, it's slightly different because... Theresa May had been a long-standing Home Secretary. She'd been Prime Minister an extremely difficult period of time. Liz Truss obviously only did a short stint as Prime Minister. But we do get some indication, Nathan, on her sort of leaving speech earlier this week where she said she's looking forward to serving her constituents in Norfolk and returning to the backbenchers. So we assume she'll be around for some time yet causing trouble for the Prime Minister. Next time we talk, I, I want to um, chat about how relatable he is to, uh, you know, Joe Public in the UK, considering he could buy, uh, you know, King Charles's palace. But let's get to this this controversy ahead of the FIFA World Cup. So um, the Rainbow Community football fans told to be respectful at the Qatar World Cup. What, what does that mean? Yeah, he, I mean, Richie Sunak is richer than the was richer than the Queen. To go back to your yeah. previously what you said, so so there is definitely an interesting debate in that. Um, this was a gaffe by the Foreign Secretary. Uh, the, the Foreign Secretary, indeed, he was retained in his job. James Cleverly, he's a real Liz Truss ally, and there was a bit of confusion as to whether he would stay in the job because he was so close to Liz Truss. Indeed, at the various hustings, which I had the. Uh, the fortune or misfortune, depending mm. on how you judge it, to be at some of them. And he was quite often the big sort of crowd rouser for Liz Truss. He'd go on and, you know, say how amazing Liz Truss is going to be as PM. He was kept on by Rishi Sunak in Foreign Secretary, which obviously is an extremely important job. And he was doing the broadcast round of interviews this morning at an LBC radio, a, a commercial station here in the UK. He slipped up because he was asked about, there's a veteran LGBT campaigner called Peter Tatchell. And he was arrested in Qatar yesterday for taking part in an LGBTQ plus protest. Uh, he was detained by police, subsequently released. Mr. Cleverly, our foreign secretary, was asked, you know, what does that say ahead of the World Cup? You know, gay protests being shut down and people being arrested. And he said something along the lines of, you know, people need to show a little bit of flex and compromise and people need to sort of respect the host nation. The implication being that if you are you know, if you are gay, that perhaps you should almost tone it down was the suggestion or you shouldn't sort of overtly show that you're gay to be respectful where, of course, Qatar is a country where it is illegal to be gay and it's illegal to, to take part in gay acts. And so there was a sort of suggestion here that he was almost trying to be too diplomatic and a bit too compromising towards Qatar at the expense of the British LGBT community. Of course, the World Cup takes place next month. There's a lot of stress in the UK about how it's going to go diplomatically, but a, a gaffe on the first day of the Rishi Sunak premiership. Yeah. Thank you very much, Henry Riley. We will hear more about that Qatar World Cup too. Interesting, interesting tournament. Uh, that was Henry out of the UK. It's 11 and a half past five. We go to Australia now where the government's turning uh, to the private sector to solve the country's affordable home crisis. So this week's budget included a pledge to uh, build 10,000 affordable homes by the end of the decade. Doesn't seem like much. Rather than being classed as public housing, the homes would be owned by private business and the government will pay them to keep the rents low. But as ABC's Angus Randall reports anti-poverty groups say that the government is passing the buck. After spending eight years on the public housing waiting list, Jennifer Harris has finally found a home. So I was actually living in my car for most of those times, trying to find suitable housing, boarding rooms that didn't always work out to be suitable, having to leave, go back to sleeping in my car, didn't have any family options of anywhere to stay. 
and frames are quite limited. So, and couchsurfing isn't always viable. The federal government says getting people like Jennifer Harris into stable housing is a priority. Yesterday's budget saw a move away from traditional government-owned public housing towards privately owned affordable homes. Wendy Hayhurst is the chief executive of the Community Housing Industry Association. It makes them affordable because there's, there's going to be an availability payment. So that's a payment that will be given, a hope, to community housing organisations to bridge the gap between what it costs to build homes and do the maintenance and management and what tenants can afford to pay. So that availability payment is like a gap payment. Think of it as a gap payment. And those homes then we should be able to let people on lower incomes. The federal government has committed $350 million to build 10,000 extra affordable homes by the end of the decade. States and territories have matched the commitment, so that's 20,000 homes all up. Wendy Hayhurst says the affordable housing sector can offer a more responsive service compared to the government system. We have a close connection with the communities we work in, so we're responsive and we can change things when circumstances change, we can respond to communities' needs. So we're not the state housing great though that may be it's big and it's large and it's difficult to move we're much more able to respond very very quickly the government is looking at superannuation funds to build these affordable homes in return the government pays super funds the difference between affordable rent and what they could charge affordable and social housing and this is where it's critical that the government comes to the party it's about creating sufficient scale in terms of the investments and investment pipeline and addressing the shortfall uh, or the gap in returns between affordable rentals and market rentals. And that's where federal government comes in with its $10 billion housing affordability fund, which will create a stream of revenue to bridge that gap. Home completion rates have been declining since the start of the pandemic as the cost of labour and materials keeps rising. Matt Linden is confident this can be overcome as the government plans to see one million homes built by the end of the decade. Well, look, it will be a challenge and this is why the government in bringing this together has uh, brought in the Housing Industry Association, the Master Builders, the Property Council and also to local government to help solve some of these blockages. There's no doubt that the rollout and the construction of these new dwellings will need to be timed to make sure that there's the skilled labour there, that the materials are there and uh, this can be done and these new dwellings can be built in a cost-effective way. Only a fraction of these one million homes will be affordable. Duncan Bainbridge is from the Anti-Poverty Network South Australia. Well, basically, as we say, it's the current housing commitment, an extra 20,000 nationally over five years. is It's a drop in the ocean. In 2021, we had 163,500 people on the public housing waiting list nationally, and it's just not good enough. It's a good start, but they can do, absolutely can do better. He wonders why the government is committing to affordable housing rather than increasing government-owned public housing. I think it seems to be the easiest solution because they can mitigate the risk by utilising an independent housing provider. Definitely passing the buck. Construction will begin on the affordable homes from 2024. The ABC's Angus Randall reporting there. It is a quarter past five. Uh, you are listening to First Up here on RNZ National with me, Nathan Rarity. I always love to get your thoughts, um, get your whakaro on things. 
I, I saw something yesterday in Parliament which I thought was quite interesting, and I, I want to know what you think of it. Is it politics? Is it smart politics? Or is it petty? Um, ACT is set to block a motion calling for a unified condemnation of Iran's oppression of women's rights unless Greens MP Golrez Karimin apologises for interrupting a speech made by party leader David Seymour in the House. So just to repeat that for you, ACT they're saying no, we're going to block that motion calling for a unified condemnation by New Zealand's Parliament of Iran's oppression of women's rights unless Green MP Golrez Karimin apologises for interrupting a speech made by party leader David Seymour in the House. And is that... Is that good politics? Is that smart politics? Or is it just incredibly petty? Uh, 2101 uh, uh, for your thoughts on that one. Or you can email first up at rnz.co.nz. Uh, we're just uh, trying to uh, get our correspondent uh, to uh, pick up the phone there in Sweden. I, th- I think we've been, uh, I think we've uh, just been let down there by the phone line. So what we'll actually do here, uh, time for from some news uh, from New Zealand, actually one of the great regions of the nation. Now this morning we're in the west coast with local democracy reporting program journalist Brendan McMahon, and I spoke with him about the council and how it's now entirely devoid of women and the brazen theft of a famous fossil. Uh, But first, when I spoke to him, I started by asking who's in and who's out after the local elections. The West Coast Regional Council, my round, has seen seventh-term councillor Alan Birchfield returned and re-elected as chairman. So we've seen a a couple of long-standing, well, one long-standing Westland constituency councillor voted out, apparently because of his green credentials. Uh, He has defended that in the past. And the other councillor, Deborah Magna, a one-term councillor, she has also gone. Both sort of internally labelled green by the power elite of the council, which is led by Councillor Birchfield. So we've seen maybe a shift to the right, perhaps. Perhaps uh, the same thing reflected in New Zealand of elections nationwide. It's interesting what you were talking there before about, the, I guess, the, the turnover uh, and perhaps to the move away, the, the, the whole we got rid of the greenies type thing. Is, is mm. that, um, tell me about the council itself. Do you think that's quite reflective of the way people feel? And why, why do they feel that way? Well, uh, Deborah Magna, who was voted out, felt that it was, she described it as a type of move to, a type of Trumpism, a move to the right, and a reaction maybe to community concern about central government, actually, but being imposed through um, changes to local government. Mm. And the regional council um, has is charged with leading uh, a new one district plan for the whole of the West Coast, which will change all the rules. And I think people are, you know, the voters were a bit un- are, we were uneasy, and, and it's been reflected in the in the outcome. Interesting, and no, no women in the Westland or the Grey District Councils. No, there's uh, actually is no no woman on the West Coast Regional Council. Oh, this time we Regional. last, yeah, so yes, sorry, uh, last time we had uh, last term we had Councillor Deborah Magna and also uh, Laura Cole from uh, Westport, who was the youngest councillor. I think she's about in the late thirties. Um, she resigned and said she wouldn't stand again this time, and Deborah Magnum was voted off, and no woman got on. So it's the new council is effectively a 60-plus all-male lineup, yeah. the Grey Hair Brigade, you might say. <laughs> hey, now, <laughs> I, I saw a, a story that I, I didn't think I'd be mo- as moved as a, or as disgusted by it, uh, you know, as I would normally of a piece of rock, but I really was. So there's this theft 
of this fossil, 23 million years old, that people have been able to come and see, a bit of whale fossil there as well. What can you tell us about this story and, and what's going on here? Yeah, so this is a, a, a fossil um, at the mouth of the Little Wanganui uh, River, which is near Karamea, so north of Westport, apparently quite well known by the locals in a, in a, a very popular spot to visit generations wide, um, in fact. And, yeah, over the weekend, uh, some locals witnessed a trio of two men, a two women and, and a man working to chisel and saw this fossil out of its bed at the mouth of the river. It's created a bit of an uproar in the last couple of days. The West Coast Regional Council, which has jurisdiction over that area, is investigating it as are the police. And and from what you've seen, no one's gone. Oh, that's someone from around here. Or I mean, do they do they? Well, have there idea? there is there is a bit of a there is a bit of social media. Oh yeah, <laughs> a noise going on about who's who and who's who who was in the photo that was posted and you know what they were doing there. So it's quite speculative, obviously. Um, yes, yeah. Yeah, we have to be careful about that, but certainly um, it's being taken seriously by the authorities. Well, let's go to Sweden now uh, for the latest from Europe. Our correspondent, Dr Anita Purcell-Sherland, stands by. Kia ora, Doctor, how are you? Fine, thank you. Good afternoon, or good morning, I should say. <laughs> Tell us about this, uh, the Ukrainian military out there. So they've warned Belarus, stay out of this Russian-Ukrainian conflict. Um, why have they said that, and, and what are they threatening? Well, the warning came amid news that Russia is sending thousands of troops to Belarus, uh, prompting fears the two countries could be planning a joint incursion across Ukraine's northern border. Now, Ukraine warned Belarusian leader Alexander Lukashenko that if the Belarusian army supports Russian aggression and drags Belarusian people into what it calls the dirty war, then Kiev said it will respond with its entire arsenal of weapons. Lukashenko is under increasing pressure from Russian President Vladimir Putin to invade Ukraine. And earlier this month, Presidents Lukashenko and Putin met, at which President Lukashenko claims that Belarus's neighbours were planning to attack, prompting Belarus and Russia to form a joint regional group of forces for protection. No end to that one soon. Let's go uh, to the other side of Europe now, the the Netherlands. The, The government is investigating something interesting. What are undeclared Chinese police stations and what's this global network they say they're part of? Well, the Dutch government is investigating media reports claiming that since 2018, Chinese police forces illegally opened at least two stations in the Netherlands in order to keep tabs and put pressure on overseas dissidents. Now, according to RTL News and investigative magazine Follow the Money, the overseas service stations at face value have administrative purposes in allowing Chinese nationals to renew driving licenses and change their civil status. Now, the two media outlets report they interviewed Chinese critics of the Beijing government who are living in the Netherlands, and these critics claim that the centres were used to track contact and threaten dissidents. And the Dutch Foreign Ministry said the presence of these stations were not reported to Dutch authorities and therefore are operating in the country illegally. Wow. Um, It looks like we're finding spies everywhere. Norway believe they've found a Russian one. What's going on there? Well, the Norwegian Domestic Security Agency have arrested a 37-year-old man claiming to be a Brazilian academic at the University of Tromsø for suspicion of being a Russian spy. Now, police identified the man in question as Jose Assis Jean Maria. 
The Norwegian National Broadcaster in Air Corps reports that he was in Norway under a false name and identity and working for one of Russia's intelligence services. Of course, this has been denied by the Russian embassy in the Norwegian capital, Oslo. Now, Norwegian authorities over the last two weeks have arrested seven Russian nationals suspected of illegally flying drones or taking photographs in restricted areas, mainly in the strategically sensitive far north of Norway, along its Arctic border with Russia. And uh, that border is almost 200 kilometres long. And as a major oil and gas producer, the NATO member state has been monitoring Russian research and fishing ships along the border. Mm. Uh, Dr. Perlin, thank you very uh, Purcell Sherlin, thank you very much for your time. There she is uh, out of Sweden. My goodness me, a lot of feedback in this morning. So earlier on, if you've just tuned in, morning, how are you? What are you mean? Uh, I was asking uh, if you thought it was a good politics or, or just pettiness there. The act set to block a motion calling for a unified condemnation of Iran's oppression of women's rights, unless the Greens MP Golriz Karamin, hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, apologises for interrupting a speech that was made by party leader David. C- more in the House. Des in Wellington says it's incredibly childish and petty. Good politics and petty behaviour, surely the two are synonymous. You must have seen Parliament TV before. Uh, Yeah, that's childish politics, uh, says Des. Lots of them coming in uh, here as well uh, along a fairly similar line to Atamari and Ethan. Uh, It's unbelievably petty but only to be expected from Seymour. Uh, That's Trish there in Waikanae. Thank you very much for your feedback. You can always uh, get hold of us there at 2101. Very quick there on the text line. Like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. The 27th of October. Woo! Here we go. Uh, On this day in 1728, uh, the Cooks went, let's call him James, and uh, he became a a quite famous explorer. Along the way, you may have heard of him, James Cook. Uh, It is the 83rd birthday today of John Cleese. Yeah, 83 years old, uh, comedy genius. On this day in 1938, DuPont uh, announced it had a new fibre, and they went, it's made of synthetic polymer, and it is called nylon. Yeah, 1938, born on this day. 1964, singers Sonny Bono, who was 29, and Sher, 18, they wed, and there was a lot of controversy because Sher wore bell bottoms. <gasps> How could she? Uh, on this day, 1982, China announced that it had officially hit a population of 1 billion people. And on this day in 2004, the Boston Red Sox entered what was called the Curse of the Bambino, and they won the World Series. If you don't care about baseball, you're like, why are you telling me this? Well, surely you've heard of someone called Babe Ruth. He was a New York Yankee, but originally he was a Boston Red Sox and the the owner sold him to the rival New York (laughs) Yankees to fund a musical that he had and the musical flopped. However, that happened in 1920 and it took them that long uh, to win themselves a, a another title. So it was called The Curse of the Bambino because uh, Babe Ruth was known as the Bambino and it was ended on this day in 2004. Anand Zaki working harder than everyone on the business team. Kia ora, sir, how are you? Morena, very well, thank you. So lots of things to uh, discuss in the world of the financials. Um, this underinsurance insurance uh, thing that we heard before, uh, tell us, just expand on that for us because we heard a little bit on the news there with Peter. Yeah, we did. Um, yeah, you may have heard earlier, you know, under insurance, big problem. Uh, it could be a real issue for homeowners 
you know, many homeowners are, are really unaware of how much insurance they will need to uh, rebuild their house if it needs replacing, uh, if it's a total loss. So uh, property research firm CoreLogic, who we speak to often, um, they surveyed uh, about a thousand policyholders, and uh, they say many are exposed to the risks uh, from weather-related events and earthquakes. So our our home insurance rate is actually pretty good. Ninety-six to ninety-eight percent are insured, so which is actually really good. But it's huge. Nearly, it's huge. It's really good. Um, but nearly a third. This is where it goes a bit downhill. Uh, nearly a third aren't confident their property is adequately insured. More than a third don't know uh, what their property is insured for. Uh, One in ten pick their insurance policy because of low excess. Um, Only two-thirds know what their excess is. And uh, CoreLogic say, you know, people are paying for insurance, but if the sum insured isn't enough for the cost of the rebuild, uh, they aren't fully covered and might only find out about this at the worst possible time. Because Mm. let's be honest, um, you don't want to know you don't have uh, enough insurance after the house has been lost, or you don't want to know what your excess is at at the same time either and find out, you know, you don't have enough to pay the excess. So, um, but even for those uh, those of you good people, there is a risk for you as well. Construction costs are rising and hitting record highs. Uh, So CoreLogic say uh, even the most uh, risk-averse consumers can be underinsured very quickly. So the message is just to keep an eye on it, um, make sure uh, that it doesn't get away from you. Uh, big companies are leaving. It's kind of like a race at the moment, uh, really, between Kanye West and Russia as to who is uh, chasing the most away. But I see the Russians have lost another, another big name leaving the country. Yeah, Mercedes-Benz, latest uh, big name to leave Russia after the invasion of Ukraine. They had already stopped manufacturing in the country uh, and exporting to the country in early March, but now it's uh, doing a total withdrawal of its services from the Russian market, uh, selling shares and its subsidiaries to a local investor. Now, Mercedes say uh, the move isn't expected to have any new effects on the company's profits. Um, and like you say, joins a bunch of other companies leaving Russia. Uh, Ford leaving Russia as well. Nissan leaving. Um, I think we've spoken about McDonald's leaving as well. Mm. Um, and I think, look, I think it's an interesting move. Mercedes-Benz is one of those companies that benefits from the wealth of Russian oligarchs. It's a real status symbol um, there. So, But I guess the market just isn't important enough. No. Thank you very much, Anantaki. You can hear more from the business team on uh, Morning Report this morning at 10 to 7. I'll tell you how your New Zealand dollar is doing, and then I'll tell you a little bit more of your thoughts this morning as well. So your New Zealand dollar today will buy you 58.28 US cents, 89.74 Australian cents, 57.97 Euro cents, 50.20 British pence, and 85.38 won. Now, I, I was asking before what you thought of, um, uh, what is it, uh, David Seymour, and uh, whether you thought it was good politics or petty. Here's another one. Uh, Morena, David Seymour and his lack of logic from the ACT Party is giving, blaming the dishes for not being washed properly, not the dishwasher. It's a common line. Oh, that's a good one. It's a common line of tendency from racist people. It's immature. Anyone could make a complaint of Seymour interrupting uh, women. Here's another one. Um, uh, It's incredibly petty, Nathan. Another one. Petty, misogynist, dangerous and definitely bad politics. Here's one at the top. Uh, Bill, please 
pass this listener's gratitude and congratulations on to Grant Robertson for passing for the passing of the Fair Pay Act. Yeah, it sort of fell through the cracks a bit, didn't it, uh, the news cycle in the last day or so. Thank you very much for your feedback. I'll get some more in there. Look, it's 25 to 6. COVID-19 swallowed many business, as we know. Uh, one of them was around the world. One of them was a school canteen in Sydney. Now, when Redham House School opened its doors after the pandemic, everyone was in for a pretty nasty surprise because they ran in the tuck shop was gone. Uh, so that is when year 10 students Jamie Holdcroft and Daniel Van Heerder took matters into their own hands and I spoke with these two enterprising young gentlemen about how it all began. The other canteen had been operating for a few years before COVID. After COVID they came back and it was a bit hard, there was no momentum, you know, they couldn't really um, sell anymore, didn't have very good customer relations and so they shut down and um, after a couple months of no food and, and kids having to walk a maybe a kilometre or so to get food. Daniel and I decided that we would take it over. Which is yeah, great. <laughs> and Daniel, had what had when you just decide you're going to take it over, is, that, is there an entrepreneurial spirit there as well, or was it just chatting from the, with the other students and that? Oh, no, I, I think we hadn't told anyone. We just we, 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 like, we had the opportunity, and we just wanted to go straight for it. So we talked to the principal. We asked if we were allowed to run the canteen. And then you got to, and that's great. Yeah. So then, so then you got yeah. to go out, and I, I guess, how did you know what to buy for the canteen, Jamie? Like, did you just replace the old menu? Yeah. So on email, we sent out some surveys to uh, not just our year, but the whole school, some teachers as well. Yeah, we got some quite quite some good responses. So I, I'm going to ask you, like, um, I'm trying to think, what is on the menu item now? Because I'm a zillion years old, you see. So when I went to school, you could get, like, cans of Cokes and chips and meat pies and lollies. Like, like can you still sell cans of Coke or is it things like bottles of water now? And how no, much How much no. does that cost you? <laughs> now, when we talked to our principal, he told us we weren't allowed to sell anything, like, particularly unhealthy. So now we're just doing, like, some basic food items like sausage rolls, meat pies, and we've got porridge that we serve on like in cold mornings. It does really well. Yeah. We've also got fruits, which we sell, and kozleme. That's like the Turkish bread. That, that's really popular. Fantastic. That is exotic, man. That's great. I love the idea of the porridge. They're forgetting there early. So what time are you arriving at school compared to what time you would normally arrive at school? Um, usually it's just a normal time for school. We just um, plan ahead. We do an order every Monday morning, actually. And then at recess, we um, just get the stuff out, uh, yeah, pre-prepare some food on some mornings, like pasta. That's so cool. And when you, you're running it, so you get to run this like a business, so all the business people listening want to know, do you manage to make any sort of profit? Yeah, yeah, it's a pretty good profit. We try not to focus just on the profit, though, you know. It's yeah. also great to provide, like, a service to the school. I could tell you what we make if you if you really want. It's okay, yeah, because it'll be on this side of the Tasman, so it's okay. You, you can go. Tell yeah. Me. Yeah, go. Usually, uh, we make about $50 profit a day, and, yeah, we make, I think, 80, around 80 revenue on average. That's great. Yeah, and it's so yeah. cool. I, I like this idea because I'm thinking... You know, like if you get contractors to come in, they'll do something like, you know, what they think. But this is, you know, by the students, for the students, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's great, yeah. Win-win. So, yeah, it is. So, yeah, I guess I want to know, like the reaction from your schoolmates when they see you around, do they shout orders to you or what's the story? 
Yeah, yeah. So um, from the CAN team, we've actually made quite a few friends. The year 12s in the year above us, we've become really friendly with them. Even the teachers, really, they also buy from the canteen. So in the hallway, whenever we see people, just friendly chat, I guess. What a cool thing to hear. And I also want to know, have you perhaps been contacted by other schools or, you know, kids from other schools that might have heard about this and go, we'd like to do that too? Yeah, yeah. Online, there's been quite a bit of good feedback. We haven't been contacted by other schools, but just comments and social media, yeah, a variety of platforms of people that just think it's a great idea. Um, we actually got a comment about maybe students wearing a uniform shop, which is pretty interesting. The professionals of RNZ are here after six. The Morning Report team at the helm this morning. Corin Dan, kia ora, sir. What's happening today? Good morning, uh, good morning, everybody. Uh, we'll look, uh, get some reaction to the two New Zealand uh, travel bloggers that are now out of Iran. We'll talk to Biraz Buchani, among others, about that. Fair pay agreements, they are finally passed. One of Labour's flagship policies from way hmm. back in uh, 2017. Finally, law, well, law now. Uh, so we'll talk, get some reaction to that from unions, business, as well as uh, from the opposition who are vowing to overturn it. And, of course, uh, rugby... Uh, you'll yes. be watching which, will you, uh, Nathan? Yeah, well, that's the thing, isn't it? Which you watch do you both. watch? You watch which both. do you watch same live time. and which do you watch delayed? I think is you it? watch both at the same time. If, you, if you're lucky enough to have Spark Sport or whatever. If no, I haven't got that one. Yeah, well, you get it on your phone and, you know, maybe only for a month and then um, yeah, you, do you know, have it on at the same time. Interesting storm here because, really, do you know why the All Blacks game will not be moved? Because it clashes with the final, the World Series of the Japanese baseball. It is ah. huge. Well, yeah. And the Tokyo team, the Swallows, who who never get there, as, as my mm-hmm. friend Chris Gilbert, who reports in our show, calls them the North Harbour of um, Tokyo baseball, um, <laughs> they've made it into the final this time. So they're right in the centre of town. I've got a friend that's up there doing commentary, and they said it is just baseball, baseball, baseball. Well, at the that's moment, fair so. enough. I mean, yeah. that's fair enough. I just think, you know, with rugby these days, particularly men's rugby, there's so many stoppages. You oh, know, the women's game so much better. It's an hour of real game anyway. Yeah, without, so you can just fl- flick around. Without a doubt. There we go. Thank you very much, Corin Dan. Well, after a false start being turned around mid-air on Tuesday, the Prime Minister has touched down in Antarctica. Uh, despite being the nation's leader, Jacinda Ardern uh, will be expected to pull her weight, eat all her food and do the dishes, you know, like when you're on the marae and you're trying to hide out in the kitchen and someone throws a tea towel at you to help with the dishes. It happens if you haven't had that happen to you. The visit from the Prime Minister to Antarctica is a celebration of Scott Base's 65th anniversary and it's set to be an action-packed 48 hours. Morning Report reporter... Leonard Powell spoke to some hearty Scott Base staff in anticipation of the visit. Scott Base is the New Zealand Antarctic Research Station. We've all likely heard of it, but travelling there, that's a different story. But that's exactly what our Prime Minister is currently doing, but not without a classic mishap. We think that experiencing a boomerang is just part of what happens in Antarctica. You know, the the weather can be difficult and unpredictable. It's one of the coldest and windiest places in the world. So it's not surprising that every now and again we have a boomerang flight that gets halfway in return. So I guess that's just part of the Antarctic experience. That's the voice of Sarah Williamson, CEO of Antarctica New Zealand. She says it'll be business as usual in Antarctica. So we have only one dining room. We have bunk beds and um, bunk rooms, so everyone gets to um, sleep with others. And you just sit down at the next table, next seat in the dining room. So it's a very community-based living area. Everyone is treated exactly the same. It's currently sunlight 24 hours a day in Antarctica, so despite the visit being short, it'll be an action-packed schedule.
We've got some great field science underway. So out on the sea ice, we've got a hole that's been drilled so that we can have a look and see what's happening on the sea floor and also just under the sea ice. So she's going to get to visit some of that science and also see some of the science that's happening around base. We want to talk to her about the Scott Base redevelopment. We have set out the cones for where the new building's going to go. So we want to make sure she has a bit of a look-see of that site and understands the work that's underway to get the site ready for when the building arrives. And we'll take her out to the historic huts. We know she has a real interest in Shackleton so we'll make sure that she gets to see some of the historic huts and we've also got a visit over the hill to McMurdo Station. We have a really close relationship with the US so we want to make sure she has a chance to visit and say hello to them as well. Head chef Al Chapman is in charge of the Kai at Scott Base. Alongside two other chefs, meals are pumped out for staff and visitors with up to 86 people in peak season. Chef Chapman says you need to be crafty with your meals down south. Nothing can be grown here, so we rely on what comes from New Zealand. We have an order that comes down on the plane. There are certain produce that we can't have because of biosecurity reasons. At the moment, we we're scheduled to receive freshies every fortnight. Of course, that's weather permitting. I asked him what kitchen appliance was the MVP. So Sundays is the day off for people, and then in the kitchen we do a brunch. And I think that the most vital piece of equipment is the waffle iron. Yeah, everyone does value their waffles on a Sunday. And if that went down, I think, yeah. <laughs> so it's a nice offering that we can put out and people are very appreciative of it. Scott Base will be sticking to the classics while the PM visits. Nothing special, just simple done well, Al says. And as for the favourites? Curry night's always a good one. We have fish and chip Fridays. And of course, probably the most important one is sausage roll Tuesdays. It's pretty much the way that people define their week. So they know it's a Tuesday, they know it's a Friday based on those two meals. And no one is above mucking in and helping with the dishes. The three chefs were responsible for our own dishes. And then at dinner time, there's a dish roster. So everyone on base has a turn at doing the dishes and uh, helps with the kitchen tidy up. It's a good team effort all the way through. Liz Parlane is the base services manager, overseeing kitchen, hospitality and domestic roles. She explains that no one is treated differently at Scott Base, but there is one exception the Prime Minister will be privy to. They'll come arrive, get their lockers, come and do an arrival brief, uh, go on a tour of the base. They'll all be staying in bunk rooms. Yeah, we have made their beds for them. Most people do have to come and make their own beds, but we have uh, made those beds. As for the first meal the Prime Minister enjoyed at Scott Base, Chef Al cooked up aoraki salmon with asparagus and buttered roasted potatoes. He says it's what they would have eaten regardless of the visit. Our ethos is simple food cooked well, keep everyone happy, happy meals, happy people. So it really does give a morale boost to the whole base crew when they get a good meal. Yeah, really hard to do seasonal vegetables in Antarctica. Here's some ice, Prime Minister. It's seasonal. Uh, The government is remaining tight-lipped about what it took to secure the release of two New Zealand travel bloggers who were detained in Iran for four months. Against official advice, social influencers um, Tofa Richwhite and Bridget Thackray crossed the border into the country. Yesterday it was announced that they were free and had left the country. So I spoke with Deputy Prime Minister Grant Robertson and asked if if, if the couple had defied a travel warning. Yeah, the advice has been clear for some time that we don't think people should be travelling to Iran. We reissued that advice today to remind people of that. It's a dangerous place. And, you know, I'm not going to comment specifically on these people and what they were doing at the time they went in and so on, because I don't have all that information. What I do know is that the Ministry of Foreign Affairs' travel advice is to not go to Iran. And I think all New Zealanders should heed that.
I was quite embarrassed by it. I kind of thought, this is their nation. They've asked you not to do this, and you just bowl in and do it anyway, right? It doesn't reflect well on any of us. I think they behave quite foolishly myself. But does this send a message then, if we're going to get them out, that people who defied travel warnings will still get rescued no matter who they are? Yeah, look, I think you've got to put yourself in the, in the shoes of New Zealand's consular officials around the world. They're not there to judge how a particular person has ended up in the circumstances. They've got a job to do, which is to help and support New Zealanders, and in this case, support these two people to leave the country. On your first point, though, I think it is worth just reflecting at a general level on the fact that when you're travelling around the world, you do need to respect the places that you go to, understand the customs and the rules, understand whether you should be there at all, and make your decisions based on that. And I think that's something New Zealanders would expect when people came to visit us in Aotearoa. Mm. And that's what we should expect of each other when we go overseas. So regardless of this situation or any other one, showing respect to your hosts, understand Understanding the rules and kinds of cultural traditions of a country are really important when you visit. When they get home, do they face any consequences? Because it's put you through a lot of work. Yeah, as I say, the MFAT deals with thousands of these consular cases a year, and that's part of you know us having a foreign service and having people available to to support them. These people will now no doubt you know reflect on what they've been through, but I. Yeah, I'm just pleased that we've been able to get them out. Right. Um, let's move to Papua New Guinea. Not not easy getting news out of there, but more than 30 people have, have been confirmed dead following the fighting there on Kirawana Island. What's the information that you have about what's happened there? Really only what's in the media, to be honest with you. Its details are extremely sketchy. I do know that the Papua New Guinea police are trying themselves to get officers to the island because I don't think they have a regular peace presence there. Local church leaders are trying to broker some uh, form of peace. We've certainly sought information from our High Commission in Papua New Guinea. There's not been any requests that I'm aware of for assistance at this stage, but obviously we always stand ready to support our Pacific neighbours in in whatever they're facing. Okay, let's go back home. Um, Had a chance to speak to Professor Michael Baker. He's looking at these figures that have come in with COVID, and we we have seen a rise. I don't think they've been this high for a, a little while now here in New Zealand where we could be getting a third wave just like they're facing in Singapore. So can you just tell us what are the preparations that the government's making you know to to keep us safe? Yeah look and obviously it's actually the usual lines of defence but just making sure that they're there and that they're available. So that means you know making people have got access to vaccines and boosters. Um, We have upped the amount of antiviral treatments that we've got available and that's important to be able to get to people who have you know particular susceptibility very very quickly. We've got you know, wide access to rapid antigen tests and masks. And obviously we've kept the seven-day isolation period in place. So those those are the defences we need. Judging by what's happened in Singapore, if we follow the trajectory there, it is a spike, but not as big a spike as the ones that we've seen earlier in the year. But obviously, you know, we have to remain vigilant. And, you know, we've got rules in place about where masks do need to be worn, but equally people can wear masks whenever they choose to. And we do encourage them when they feel that they might be in a confined um, space or environment to wear a mask because that is a good protection for you. Yeah, and, you know, in the media as well, we've been talking a lot about the salvation of the seas, the, the cruise ship that comes in, the report of about 130 people uh, with COVID on board, they've been walking around, coughing, spluttering in towns. Was it not clear to them that all cruise ship operators, you know, that people with COVID needed to isolate on board for seven days and not five? 
Yeah, look, and those things are, are very made very clear to uh, operators by the re- the public health units. Um, they do know what they need to do to manage, and you know those guidelines we would certainly expect to be followed. I did see some media reports of some people coming off ships in into ports in New Zealand and going to pharmacies and so on, and and not adhering to the rules about wearing a mask in a pharmacy, which is actually one of the you know one of the continuing obligations people have. So. There is no way that cruise ship operators can claim they're not aware of our expectations. And um, I know that Minister Aisha Viral has, this, has yesterday asked um, Te Whatua Health New Zealand and Customs to talk again to ship operators to urgently reiterate our expectations. We think they're clear, but we've got to make sure they're being adhered to. And I guess when we talk about spikes and things, one of this is, I mean, you know, our hospitals, we, we've spoken about it plenty, that, you know, they, they're quite understaffed in many places. We've seen a lot out there in Middlemore. But also hearing about overseas doctors having difficulty registering in New Zealand. I mean, with junior doctor Maureen Dust, he spent two years working in the UK and Australia. He's been, uh, she's been told she can't work here. What, why are they having such trouble getting in? We need them. We want them. Yeah, look, and those things are managed by the Medical Council, and the Medical Council is independent of the government. It's their role to ensure that doctors are properly qualified to provide care, and that has been the case for many, many years. And we do know the Medical Council review their processes pretty regularly to make sure they're fit for purpose, but Andrew Little's written to the Council just to seek an assurance that we're actually aligned with comparable countries like Australia and the UK, because while we do want to obviously ensure safety for people in New Zealand, we also shouldn't have unnecessary barriers and I think we're just asking the council to take another look and make sure that their criteria are not putting in place barriers that aren't actually about safety or if they're about you know a tick box type thing. Let's actually get the focus right here. It's, it's a tough job. No one would want us to be in a position where someone was approved and then they didn't turn out to have the qualifications but I think we should be looking to do whatever we can to get good quality doctors in especially, as you say, ones who who are here, want to be here, and the Medical Council, I know, will look closely at their procedures, and we've certainly asked them to do that again. I know you've got a country to run. Very quickly, two sports questions for you as a Minister of Sport. Number one, what are you watching live, and which one are you watching on delay? All Blacks, Black Ferns. I will be at the Black Ferns game in Whangarei. I'm enormously looking forward to it. Um, They're looking in great form. Um, This is a critical game for them in the quarterfinal, Um, and you're 100% right. I will be watching the game against uh, the All Blacks game against Japan on delay. And, and 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 something that came out, I'm not sure if you've had a chance to hear about this, the Auckland 1A principals have announced that they're going to ban the live broadcasting and live streaming of first 15 matches there. Are you, are you surprised by that? I'm not, because this has been a topic of discussion for some time among secondary school sport uh, administrators, school principals and so on. You know, the first 15 competitions are hard fought, but I do know that there's been some concerns about it taking away from the enjoyment that people should be having of playing for their first 15 and turning it into something that is at a level of intensity and in a way that could have some unfortunate outcomes. We want people to enjoy playing sport um, when they're that age. You know, first 15 rivalries, when you and I were at school, Nathan, were intense and they weren't live on TV. It can still have that intensity without spilling over and, you know, creating an environment that that takes away the enjoyment. So it's not a decision the government's involved in, obviously. It's one that's been taken by the school principals, but it's certainly an issue I've heard raised a few times over the last few years. Grant Robertson there. A lot of feedback this morning. I'll try and get through as much of it as I can. Andrew says, Hi Nathan, these two New Zealanders who escape Iran are fools. There's no doubt, based on my personal 
personal experience and public evidence that Iranian authorities play by their own hardcore rules. It's not a place for twerps to play their look-at-me games. They're arrogant fools. Build them, says Andrew. Uh, we've got a message in here about Scott Bass. Yeah, very cool. Lord went a few years ago. Inspirational. She's neighbours to my parents. That's quite nice. Um, another one here. Max in Christchurch. So I was asking before about David Seymour. David says... Uh, sorry, Max says... Could be. Uh, hi Nathan, why don't you interview Seymour and ask why he blocked this? As I think your text straw poll is a very cheap hatchet job suiting your left wing views. Good on you, Max. Uh, here's another one. Uh, so our Prime Minister can, I would just wish she would do the job she's paid for, so overexposed. She goes for one photo opportunity to another. Um, I voted for Labour last election. Yeah, that one. Uh, so over the PR spin, Scott Bass, what next carbon footprint is an issue for everyone else, but not apparently Prime Minister. There is so much of it in here. Sorry, I'm trying to get through as fast as I can. Cameron Turner, hit McLean, kia ora to you. Welcome to the show. It's been texting up a storm this morning. Uh, New Zealand rugby, another glorious blunder. Uh, Barbara says Seymour's move morally repugnant, repugnant, politically brilliant. Another one who doesn't want to see less of Seymour. That's from Wally. Here you go. Morning Report is next. We're back in your ears. Ah, poor, poor. Busy old day.